Chapter 15 here in, in Psalms, we don't have much of a backstory, unfortunately. The heading in your Bible probably says something super simple like a Psalm of David, and that's it. Like, there, there's, there's no continuation there. Some scholars, people smarter than me, think that this Psalm could have been written in conjunction to when David brought the Ark of the Covenant back up to Jerusalem. And that whole ordeal, if you remember, we find the story in 2 Samuel 6. They put it on the new car. The guy goes to stabilize the car. It starts to tip and things end badly for him. Maybe it's in conjunction. David started to ask the similar questions around that time as we find here. But what we have here in this chapter is really a question that David asks in verse 1. It says, who can come before the Lord? Who can dwell in His presence? And then the rest of the chapter, it gives us the, the, the answer to that question. So let's dive right in. A psalm of David, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Let's just read the whole chapter. Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor, does, or nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not ch- change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. So we come... We begin the psalm, David begins the psalm by asking again that question, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? And that Hebrew word abide here emphasizes a more temporary residing. The thought is similar to that of a sojourner, someone who is just visiting. The word is not describing a permanent dwelling place, but a temporary dwelling place. Someone just, again, visiting, someone receiving hospitality from their host who, who lives in a tent. You know, when we lost power this, this week, we kind of uh, teamed up with Josh and Danae, and they, they stayed over for uh, a few nights, and we just kind of did crazy together, and that was super fun. But um, I guess you could say that Josh Josh and Danae were abiding with our family just for a few nights. They were temporarily residing with us. They weren't staying with us forever. That was Josh's promise. Um, No, I'm teasing. We said you could stay as long as you want. But he says, Lord, who may visit your, your tent? Now, the tent, or maybe your translation says tabernacle, but it was the tent of meeting. If you remember, it was God who told Moses to build it for him during that Exodus journey. But the tent was was designed to be a place where the people met with God through the administration of the priests and the sacrificial system. And David's just longing here to abide in the Lord's tent was really, again, just a desire to be in the presence, to abide in the, the presence of God. What David has in mind is what we would call someone who is just simply wants to live in the awareness of the presence of God. I think it was Brother Lawrence who, who, who wrote the book, coined the phrase, like the practice of the presence of God. Just someone who wants to, to live in that, that mode just continually. Lord, I want to live and walk in closeness to you, close fellowship with you, my heart, my mind, my, my whole being. 
Lord, would you direct my step? I just want to live close to you, in your presence. I want to know you more. And so he begins with this, with this earnest question, oh, Lord, who may abide in your tent? And then he asks, who may dwell on your holy hill? Now, let me remind you, Psalms is a book of poetry. And like I mentioned in the introduction a few weeks ago to the book, Hebrew poetry is a lot different than the poetry in our day. I'm not a huge poetry fan. But in Hebrew poetry, they would often use repetition to emphasize certain points. And that's what we, we have here. David says, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? In essence, David is pretty much saying the same thing. He's using the Hebrew technique of repetition to ask the same question, again, in two different ways. All, again, all for emphasis. Now, Although he's building, though, that thought of this question, who would you allow in your presence, as he's emphasizing this question, there is, though, a distinction between these two lines. He says first, who may abide, notice that, and then he says, who may dwell in your holy hill. David is using two different words, a different word for, um, than, than abide that we find in that first line. The word dwell has a more permanent sense than the word abide. David Gutzik in his commentary says this, it's as if David wrote, who may be received as a guest into God's tent? That would be the first line. And the second line could read, who may live as a citizen in his holy hill, a more permanent dwelling. He says, Lord, who? Who is it? Who is able to visit you? Who's able to dwell in your presence? Who's able to live with you as a, as a citizen in your kingdom? And again, starting in verse 2, he answers the question with 11-ish characteristics. And almost if you, if you notice it when we read it, almost every other verse, you have a positive, and then the, the, the preceding verse is like a negative, meaning that the character of this person who would dwell in the presence of God is defined not just by what they do, but also by what they don't do. But he starts with the positive in verse 2. Look at this again. It says, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He, so he first says, first of all, the person who is going to enjoy God's presence and be at home there is going to be someone who just walks with integrity. Very simple. Like, I didn't break that. I didn't have to break that down. That just the way that they live their life. It's like a no-brainer when you, when you watch their life and their character. You, you, you notice them for a period of time and you see how they live. They're not messing around, but they're walking with integrity. They're blameless. They're living a blameless life. And then he said they work righteousness. What do they produce? Like, what is the, the fruit of their lives? What happens when you're around them, when they're in, a ten, in an intense season in their life? What kind of fruit do they produce? This person works righteousness. They do good. And then it says that he, he speaks truth, not just audibly, but notice what he says. He says, but in his heart. You can just tell, you can just sense that the Spirit, like when you're around this person, they're not, they're not fake, they're not phony, they're sincere. They're genuine in their walk with the Lord. Last week, we briefly looked at the unrighteous, you know, having that double heart. But this person speaks the truth in his heart. The New Living says here, speaking the truth from a sincere heart. And because of that, look at verse 3. He does not slander with his tongue. That is, he doesn't gossip. He's saying the person who walks with integrity, who works righteousness, who speaks 
truth in his heart, that person does not slander with his tongue. You know, I think of the words of Jesus in Matthew 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And because he speaks truth in his heart, what comes out? Good comes out. Not slander, not evil, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend. Again, he exemplifies in his life the greatest commandments, right? Remember Jesus? Said of all the, the, all the commandments, what was the greatest? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind and your strength. And then, secondly, just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we find here. Does no, he doesn't eat, does, does no evil to his neighbor. In whose eyes a reprobate or a vile person, your translation might say, is despised. This person doesn't look with rose-colored glasses at a vile sinner. You know, isn't that contrary to our culture today, if we're honest? People we have calling good evil and evil good, right? And they're just like, man, that's amazing. You're like, no, it's not amazing. And we tend to make excuses for people's sins. But, but here he says that the person who draws close to God, the person who wants to live and dwell in the presence of God, he hates sin, he despises those who just willfully live a life in disobedience to the Lord, walking against the ways of the Lord, those who live in outright rebellion, again, against God. Now, let, let me say this. We have a serious problem in our culture today, especially, I would say, and I hate picking out generations because I think it's unfair, but I, I see it, and maybe because I'm more critical towards my generation and I found myself guilty of this all of the time, where we try to be so friendly with the fallen world, where we're no longer having an impact for the gospel on it. Do you guys know what I'm saying here? Like, like becoming too friendly with the fallen world? Um, again, I've been guilty you know, oh, just to fit in with the, with the crowd. Oh, and then, and then once I do that, I'll, then I'll bring Jesus up to them. You know, kind of like that missionary friendship, like missionary dating, if you will. But all along the way of friending up, and again, I'm speaking to myself, I start looking like the world. I start thinking the way that they think. They start having a greater influence on my life than I have on their lives. We no longer despise those in complete rebellion against God, as David says here, but we find ourselves looking more and more like them. Listen, I'm not saying, I don't want you to get me wrong, to live in a Christian bubble. That's not what I'm saying, okay? I'm not saying that. I'm not saying don't make friends in this world or have relationships with your neighbors, your coworkers, family who don't know Jesus. But what I am saying and what I was just ministered to greatly is to build relationships, but here's the key, don't forget Jesus. Don't leave Jesus in the car when you go to the office Monday through Friday. You know, don't leave Jesus at home when you go out to dinner with your friends. Listen, our culture does not need more Christians looking like the world. Our culture needs a true, genuine representation of Jesus Christ to this world. I think of the psalmist, his words in Psalm 97, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. It's to hate evil. So again, he says in verse, verse 4, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, they understand right from wrong, good from evil. And here's the contrast. But who honors those who fear the Lord. The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9 tells us. 
The fear of the Lord determines the way that we live, the way we conduct our lives. You know, Psalm, Psalm 19 tells us that the fear of the Lord is clean. What an interesting just description of the fear of the Lord. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not a scary thing. He says at the end of verse 4, he, he swears to his own herd. It's a really interesting term and does not change. In other words, the, this, he's a man who stands by his word. He's a man of his word. He makes promises. He keeps promises. Even, notice, when, it no, when it's no longer to his advantage. He doesn't change. He doesn't flip-flop. He doesn't say one thing. Then two days later, he changes it to something else. Again, he would, he would rather hurt himself than go against his word. Just a man of integrity. Verse 5, he does not put out his, uh, his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. That is, he's not looking to take advantage of other people financially. He doesn't have ill motives against the most vulnerable in this world. And then he, he says, as he concludes the chapter, he who does these things will never be shaken. I love that because everything around us is shaking, it's moving, it's unstable. But this person, it says, will never be shaken. Now, as I concluded that chapter, I was left feeling very, very low. <laughs> because as I look at the description, I see myself and I'm like, oh, crud. <laughs> Before we move on to the next chapter, I could leave you tonight in a very dangerous place if all I leave you with was that just quick checklist. If all chapter 15 is to you is, hey, if you want to be in the presence of the Lord, then all you have to do is X, Y, and Z. If, if you want to experience God, if the favor of God, the blessing of God, then do this or, or don't do this. Here's the list of rules. Just keep them. God will like you. God will welcome you into his, into his kingdom. I would be mistaken if I just left you there tonight. Now, David, we have to remember, is writing and has the old covenant in mind. The old covenant was a performance-based system. If you want blessing, you had to obey and when you didn't obey, you had to sacrifice. You had to make sacrifice in order to be made right with God. The old covenant was blessing through obedience. There, were, it, there was a con, it was conditional. It was contingent on your performance. David knew this covenant very well. He lived under it. You want to enter the presence of the Lord? Here's what you need to do. And that's what we find in this chapter. But guess what? For you and I tonight... We are no longer under the old covenant. Well, we never have been. You and I, thankfully, we were born later. We're no longer under the law. We're under the new covenant. The new covenant where Jesus offered his body on the cross, poured out his blood so that we could be forgiven. He established that new and better covenant. Luke records it this way in Luke 22, starting in verse 19. And when he, had, when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, the, the book of Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness, no remission of sins. And that, again, that was true in the old, the old covenant as well. That's why there was those bloody sacrifices. But all of those bulls and goats, the sacrifices in the old covenant, 
only enabled them temporarily to be in fellowship with the Lord. It was a band-aid, if you will. But the good news is, is that in the new covenant, Jesus died once and for all. And when we place our faith in him, when we trust his work on the cross, the Bible tells us that his righteousness gets, I love this, imputed to us. His record of goodness gets exchanged for our record of badness, that we have right standing before the Father in heaven. Again, not by our obedience, not by our own merit or or obeying the rules, but by his obedience. Nothing that we have done, but all because of what Jesus has done for us. And so when you and I, we place our faith in Jesus, our trust in, in his work for us, we experience the forgiveness of God. You know, I think of Ezekiel, that just the promise of the new covenant is, I will give you a new heart and put in you a new spirit. A part of this new covenant is that we get the Holy Spirit to live in our hearts. We get his power in us, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We get access to the Father. We can now have that, a personal relationship with God. In the old, old covenant, that was done through the priest. That was done through sacrifice, but because Jesus has established, again, this better covenant, our faith and trust in him gives us direct access to the Father in heaven. Amen? And so when we read this chapter, oh, Lord, who may dwell or abide in your tent? Who may dwell with you? Be in your presence. And then it lists this, like, long list of do this, don't do this. And some of you are are reading that tonight. You're like, dang it, man. I failed. I fail, I'm failing, I'm currently like missing the mark. And then David rounds out the chapter saying, when whoever does those things will never be shaken. And you're like, is there any hope for me? But the good news is yes. You see, the list, this list, and you're, you're, you're failing to live up for it. You're, you're, in, you're just seeing your inability to live up to it, to gain access to, the God, to, to God. That inability to, should drive you to Jesus. Jesus was perfect in all of these things for us. Where Jesus fails, listen to this, where we fail, Jesus succeeds. Let me get that right on record. Where we fail, Jesus succeeds. Jesus perfectly fulfilled all of the requirements of the law and the standards that we even see in this psalm. And because he has established for us this better covenant, all we have to do by faith is trust him. We get the good end of the deal. It's not about your performance. It's not about what you can do or how well you can live. Oh, there is the biblical truth of of sowing and reaping. Like, we can't forget that. But when it comes to access to God, favor before God, right standing before God, It all rides on the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, as David rounds out this psalm, I promise you, you will never be shaken. Like, that's the guarantee. We have a hope that is steadfast, an anchor for the soul in Jesus. All right, chapter 16. I just had to, I had to say that because I, I tend to be a little bit of a legalistic person. I like rules. I like to-do lists. I like check, check boxes. It just makes me feel like I've done a good job or I'm, I'm, you know, making progress. Listen, there's no progress you can make with Jesus. You're standing before God. Just trust the Lord. All right, chapter 16. Its heading says that it's a mictum of David. Charles Spurgeon says that the title mictum is commonly understood as golden. It's a golden psalm. 
However, there's others that I was reading. They tend to believe that the word might also uh, mean covering or to, to cover. Uh, this word is also found in the heading of Psalms 56 through 60, where David is found in just dangerous situations. He's pleading for deliverance. But again, the exact meaning is not 100%. But we do know that this is a Psalm of David. Let's look at verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. So David, once again, <laughs> finds himself in another one of those sticky situations. He always seems to find himself in hard situations in his life. His back's against the wall. He's in trouble. He's desperate. He's crying out. He says, Lord, you're my preservation. Lord, you're the one who's got to protect me. Why? He says, because I trust in you, Lord. It's you that I take refuge. It's in you that I find rest. And I can only think of, I think about King David as a king or even as shepherd. Lord, you know, as, as a bodyguard, <laughs> my posse would protect me as king. My mightiest men keeping me safe or, or as a shepherd would, would protect the flock from the danger of bears and lions. Lord, would you preserve me in that way? Charles Spurgeon used to say that one of his greatest, one of his favorite names of God is the preserver of men. We find that in Job chapter 7, the one who watches men. I love that. God, you are the preserver of men. And then we find King David talking to himself. He's, he's talking to his soul, verse 2. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. You are my Adonai. You're my master. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. I look to you in my life to give me direction, he's saying. I have no good besides you. David's fully aware that even on his best day, all of his goodness was nothing apart from God. David was reliant on the, the goodness, the faithfulness of God in his life. Apart from it, he's like, I'm nothing. Verse 3, as for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. So David looks at the people around him, despite all of their failings or flaws, he takes delight in them. David delighted, he says. He takes pleasure in the people of God, you know. Just for a moment, just soak, soak into that. David delights in whom is all my delight. Some of you, you might need to be challenged with that. You look around on a Sunday morning, you're like, or a Wednesday night, maybe the person you're sitting next to, you're like, I don't like you, I don't like you, I don't like you. Like your small group, you're like, oh, he's talking again or whatever. But let this soak in. Man, I delight. Can you say that about yourself? I delight in God's people. The craziest ones, the unlovable ones, the ones that control the conversation at home group. Like you're like, oh, do you delight in them? The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. That is, those who go and chase after other gods, those who go out and live for other little gods. David says their sorrows will be multiply. They will be increased. And then he says about himself, I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. So David, he looks at them. He sees their future. He's like, I've gone many places in my life, but I'm not going there. I'm not going with them. David draws his line in the sand. The wicked, they want to chase after idols. That's fine. But I won't even get so close to the line where I have to speak their name. 
David has just this resolve in his heart. Lord, you've got to preserve me. I'm nothing without you. You're my Lord. You're my master. You're my commanding officer, my head coach, whatever you want to, you want to call it. And, I've, and I'm nothing in this life without you. I have no good apart from you. You're the only good thing in my life. I mean, I love, love seeing your people, delighting in your people. But the wicked, Lord, their problems are going to be multiplied. Why? Because they worship idols. They're not worshiping you. And I don't want any part of it. The names of their gods, they won't even be on my lips. And then David looks within his heart in verse 5. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance, my cup, who you support my lot. David's saying that the Lord himself, Lord, you're my reward. You're my inheritance. You're what I'm waiting for. You know, you think of heaven. Heaven's going to be great. It's going to be grand. you got streets of gold. We've been learning about that since we were kids. Revelation tells us no more sorrow, right? No more pain, no more tears. We can not even imagine that. But listen, it wouldn't be heaven if God isn't there. It's the presence of God that makes heaven, heaven, the glory of God, we're told in Scripture. Revelation replaces the sun. David says, all of those things, they're majestic, right? Streets of gold, like no more sorrow, pain, tears, just the wonders, like all of those things fail in comparison. He says, Lord, you're my portion, You're the portion of my inheritance. You're what I'm longing for. You're the hope of my life. I love that. And then he says in verse 6, the lines have fallen to me, he says, in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. Again, David here knows the joy of just communing with God. It's the Lord who counsels him. It's the Lord who's guiding him. He even says, hey, in the night when I'm lying on my bed, after a long day, when I'm all alone, Lord, when I'm thinking about you, you've spoken to me. You've, you've shared with me. You've filled me. Verse 8, I have set the Lord continually. I love this verse. I have set the Lord continually before me. You know, at some point in his life, David had decided that he was going to put God first in his life, that God alone was going to be his focus, that God alone would have his affection, would capture his attention. He says, I've set the Lord, notice the word, continually before me. Not just at the men's conference in 2017 or, or two years ago at the women's retreat or what have you, but moment by moment, day by day. Listen, the enemy, if you're not aware of this, the enemy is working overtime to get your eyes off of Jesus to deprioritize Jesus in your life. You know, hey, you're going to church like two out of four Sundays. You're doing great. He, the enemy wants to get you apathetic in your daily walk with Christ. And there are so many things that this world throws at us and tells us, hey, set this continually before you. Set your, your work or your hobbies or your sports or your hunting or your shopping at Hobby Lobby or whatever, you know, whatever that thing is that the, the world, you know, the, we all have our different temptations, right? No judgment, but whatever it is, right? The, the world's trying to replace Jesus, replace the Lord in your life. And, so, and David says here, I set the Lord continually before me. And then he says, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. That's the fruit. That's the, the, the fruit. This is the result of David's decision to put God first in his life. He gained security. Listen, I was thinking about this. If you put your job first, there's always going to be that next goal, right? That next promotion to hit, that next project, the higher 
quota, right? It comes with insecurity. There's always going to be that demanding pressure. But listen, if you put the Lord first, you put the Lord in front of your eyes continually, you will not be shaken. It doesn't matter what happens in the office. It doesn't matter what happens if you have a bad day because your security doesn't come. It isn't derived from your job. It's not derived from anything else. It's derived from the Lord. That's where your security comes from. Verse 9, therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will d- dwell securely. The New Living says it this way, no wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice. My body rests in safety. He's saying, because of this, Lord, because of you, because you're before me, my heart is glad. This, this makes sense now. Like, I'm at rest. Like, where was I getting this rest from? Where was I getting this peace from? Oh, that's right, Lord, it's you. Because I've purposed to put you before me. There was happiness, a joy that David knew he experienced by living his life solely for the Lord that he would, that he would never experience had he not put the Lord continually before him. The world couldn't offer David this kind of joy. Your work can't offer you this kind of joy. Netflix couldn't offer David this joy. A better promotion at your job couldn't offer him this joy. Again, only life with the Lord could give him what this world can't take from him, the joy of the Lord, gladness in his heart. Verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Lord, the reason, he's saying, the reason I can rejoice, the reason why I feel so blessed in my life is because he says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to the grave. Now, here's the interesting thing. David's not saying, hey, guys, we can just take it easy, right? We can just chill because even when we die, we're going to go to heaven, right? That can be our mentality. He's not saying here, he's not saying that. He's saying we will, notice this, we will not die. Notice that? Jesus would would use these words, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. That's what he's saying. He says, you won't abandon my soul to Sheol. Lord, when I take my last breath, he's saying, I'm not going to be abandoned by you. I'm not going to be abandoned to the unseen realm. I'm going to be taking my first breath with you face to face in glory. That's what he's saying. For you, in, in, in verse 10, well, again, will not abandon my soul, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Speaking, I think, prophetically of Jesus here, the Holy One, being raised from the dead the third day without decay, without rot. You will make known to me the path of life. And I love this line, in your presence. That's what we're after, amen? The presence of God. In your presence, notice what we find is fullness of joy, and in your right hand there are pleasures, how long? Forever. Forever. He says, you're going to make known to me. This is your work, God. And that is the heart of the Lord. He desires tonight, He desires to show you the path of life. He desires to lead you on it, to, to reveal it to you. And in this life that the Lord gives to us, David says, in your presence is fullness of joy. Not 90% joy, fullness of joy. 
When in the presence of God, David just didn't experience this fuzzy feeling of emotionalism. That's, we can kind of get captured in that. You get it for a few minutes and then it's gone. No, no, David didn't just get temporary happiness that's based on circumstances or maybe how well the band played, if you will. No, no, David says, when we meet you, God, you, there's fullness of joy in your presence David's talking about something that this, again, this world cannot offer. Oh, it tries, right? It tries to offer you fullness of joy. It lies to me every single day. Like, click here, man. It knows, like, what I'm interested, all my interests, like Facebook or whatever. It knows, man. It searches my Amazon account. What kind of things is, is he thinking about purchasing? And it's, it's saying, like, hey, find joy here, find joy here. And it's just everywhere, right? We can be consumed with this. Take this. Do this, watch this, click here. This is, this is where you find true joy, true happiness, true fulfillment. Don't listen to it. Why? Because David says, in, here's where you're going to find it, in the presence of the Lord. That's where you're going to find it. How long? How long, does it, how long does it last? Forever. Pleasures forever are found, he says, at the right hand of God. Not apart from God, at his right hand. You know, it's interesting how David begins and he ends the psalm. David, David Kidner said this. The refugee, right, the one seeking refuge in verse 1, finds himself an error and his inheritance beyond all imagining and all exploring. You know, David, he just starts, Lord, preserve me. I take refuge in you. I'm desperate for you. But there's the good news. When I'm with you, when I set you continually Before me, before my eyes, I will not be shaken. In fact, when I'm with you, I get fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. It's not problem-free living. Fullness of joy, again, just comes from being in the presence of the Lord. That's chapter 16. And now we we move on as we take a deep breath. (laughs) Chapter 17 says here in the heading, a prayer of David. It's not written to necessarily anyone. As last week we looked at, all three of them were written to the, the choir director, the chief musician. This just says a prayer of David. In the psalm, we get to hear David once again just pour out his heart. Again, we don't know the exact context of this psalm. Many presume that it was around the time when Saul was chasing after David. Actually, a lot of it resembles a lot of um, chapter 7 that we went a couple of weeks went through a couple of weeks ago but that's where David was just falsely being falsely accused from Saul from his men and there's people hunting him right there's an army chasing after David they're running through the mountains wanting to kill David for something that David didn't do you know David was loyal David was faithful David was the one who killed the giant Goliath. David was the one who played soothing music on the harp for Saul when that evil spirit came upon him. David was the one who refused to kill Saul when he had him in his hands. He had every opportunity to do so. David wasn't the one who did anything wrong. He did everything right, but bad things are still happening. The enemy is still accusing. But what we watch here. In David's life, you know, what does David do in these circumstances? Man, I've done everything right, and yet I'm going through crud. Notice, we're going to notice in this chapter that he prays. 
Some of us, man, we'd be tempted to rant on social media, like, oh, I'm going to get them, I'm going to destroy their reputation, or I'm going to call a close friend and kind of get them heated with me. No, no, David, David takes it to the Lord. Instead of fretting, instead of worrying about his circumstances, he cries out to the Lord in verse 1, Hear a just cause, O Lord, give heed to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. He just says, hear, hear a just cause, O Lord. The Hebrew interpretation is literally, hear, O Lord, what is right. And the idea of, of what he's bringing to the Lord is right. It's not, a, it's not a up for debate, if you will. David is fully convinced that he is right, that he is just, that he is blameless in all of his doings, in all of his ways. Lord, you know what I'm saying is right. You know, you know the guilty. You know the innocent. You know I'm just. Lord, when everyone else will not believe me in this life, when everyone else is just accusing me and just throwing accusation after accusation against me, Lord, you know what the truth is. That's what he's saying. Have you guys ever been there in your life? People just saying things about you, this about you, that about you. Like, Lord, that's, we, Lord, that's not true. You know that. You know what's right, Lord. You know what's right and just. Would you hear? That's what David's saying. Would you hear that? He says, give heed to my cry. David's in this situation again in his life. And it's not like someone just unfriended him on Facebook and, and is just upset with him, having a bad day with David. No, no, he is quite possibly on the run from King Saul, from an army chasing after him. And you can almost hear the, the desperation in his writing. Give heed to my cry. Like, Lord, listen up. I'm in tears. Give ear to my prayer. Again, like a child is just pulling on the coat string of, of, of their parent. Like, let me just li listen to me, God. I'm desperate. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. David's crying out to the Lord. And he's pleading before the Lord. And he's convinced again that he's bringing truth and not falsehood in his prayer. I'm not lying. I'm not making this stuff up. Let my judgment, in verse 2, come forth from your presence. Let your eyes look with equity. He's saying if someone is going to pass judgment or rule in this case, Lord, let it be, let it be you because you're the, you're the just one. You're the righteous one. It means nothing if I pardon myself on my last day in office, right? Lord, Lord you're, the, you're the real judge. And we, you know, we saw that with, with David. He had every opportunity, again, to kill King Saul in the cave. He had Saul's life just in his hands. David could have gotten justice for himself, but he didn't. He said, Lord, Lord, who, who am I, right? Who am I to touch the Lord's anointed? Lord, you established all. You, I'll let you be the one to take him out. Judgment has to come from you, not me, not anyone else. Lord, you, would you judge the case? You have tried my heart, verse 3. You have visited me by night. Now, it's interesting. The word tried and visited come from the same root word, which means examine. He's saying, Lord, you have examined my heart. Other people are, are just accusing me, but you've looked within. You've gone deeper. You've investigated my heart. He says, even in the night, again, when I'm lying on my bed, when I'm alone with my thoughts, no one else is around me, where my, where my thoughts and my heart could, could easily escape me and run from me, that's when you've, you've examined me. Lord, you've tried me in this. You know truth. You know right from wrong in this. You've tested me, he says, and you find nothing. I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress. Now, David is not saying that he's sinless here. 
It's also what we found in, in when Pastor Kevin was taking us through Job, right? When Job was pleading his innocence, Job was saying, he wasn't saying he, he was sinless, but that he wasn't guilty of what his friends were accusing him of. And it's the same thing right here with David. It's like, I'm not, I'm not sinless, but the accusations from Saul, from his goons or whatever, they're completely wrong. And I'm, and I'm going to prove my case before you so that you, God, can rule in righteousness, right? You're the one that needs to judge this. And he says, as I wait for your ruling... I've purposed, I love this, that my mouth will not transgress, will not sin. Man, that's hard, isn't it? When we've been hurt, when we've been wronged, we're the innocent ones here. David's like, I'm not going to allow their sin to become my sin. I'm not going to allow them to drag me down with them. I'm not going to stoop to their level. I'm not going to get in the ring, right, put my, my gloves on and just and, and fight that way. No, 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 Lord, I'm going to trust you. You've got to handle this. Verse 4, as for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips, that's the word, God's word, I've kept from the paths of the violent. Saying, Lord, your word has guided me. It's helped me. When all these accusations come, came pouring in, when evil men have just been chasing me, you know, I've been innocent before you. God, it was your word that kept me on the straight and narrow. It was your word that preserved me. It wasn't my emotions. It wasn't my feelings. Those things, man, they, they lie to me all day long. It wasn't the pep talks from my mighty man, right? Because those won't sustain me, Lord. It was your word, that word that is a lamp to our feet, right? A light into our path. The psalmist would go on to say, I've hidden your word in my heart so that I will not sin against you. And that's what we're seeing here. Your, your word is the, the only thing that's going to sustain me, save me. Verse 5, my steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. David knew and he recognized how easy it would be for him to slip up, to stray off. And, but as a, again, a result of just clinging to the word of God, David says, I've been, I've been able to hold fast to your paths. My feet have been secure. They've been anchored. They, they haven't slipped. Verse 6, I've called upon you. For you will answer me. Oh God, incline your ear to me. Hear my speech. Wondrously show your loving kindness. Oh Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand from those who rise up against them. It was saying, Lord, you save. You keep me. You are my defense. I'm confident that when I call, you will answer. He says, wondrously show your loving kindness. The, the New Living says, show me your unfailing love in wonderful ways. I like that. One of the things I like more is the New King James. I grew up on that translation. Show your marvelous loving kindness. Not just a little bit, God, of your loving kindness. Show me your marvelous loving kindness. That's what David's just asking of the Lord. Charles Spurgeon, and I've been reading his commentaries, if you haven't <laughs> can tell, um, through the book of Psalms, but he, he's quoted by saying this. I I, I, it was too good to, not pa to pass up. Do you not see that you have been a marvelous sinner? Marvelously ungrateful have you been. Marvelously have you aggravated your sins. Marvelously did you kick against a mother's tears. Marvelously did you defy a father's counsel. Marvelously have you laughed at death. Marvelously have you made a covenant with death and a league with hell. Oh, says he, God will never have mercy on me. It is too great a thing to hope, too great a wonder to expect. 
Young man, here is a new prayer for you. Show me your marvelous loving kindness. Isn't that true? You and I, we've been extreme in our rebellion towards God. We've been extreme in our sin toward God. We are in desperate need for God to show us his extreme love. Marvelous loving kindness. What a great prayer. Keep me, he says, as the apple of the eye. The eye is, as we all know, is the most, one of the most sensitive, tender parts of our body. It's precious. It's valued. And David's like, keep me there. Keep me as the apple or the center, the pupil it's referring to, of your eye where I'm most precious to you. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Again, another just powerful imagery that he's using. You can't think of just a safer place than to be fully covered, fully protected by the Lord. You know, as a mother bird would just protect her, her young chicks from harm, right? From danger, from horrible weather, what have you. David's like, do that to me, Lord. Like, would that be our relationship? Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who despoil me or who oppress me my deadly enemies who surround me. Again, if this is the time in David's life where he's on the run, there is a true, real, life-threatening danger daily in front of him constantly. David often felt trapped by Saul, surrounded by Saul and his men. And they have closed their unfeeling heart with their mouth. They speak proudly. Again, David's describing his enemies as they've closed their unfeeling heart. In other words, they're heartless. They're without pity, the new living says. They're arrogant in all of their ways. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. He is like a lion that is eager to tear and as a young lion lurking in hiding places. Again, David's describing the character of his enemies. Again, this was, this was not just a casual, like, uh, an angry text message. This is a life-threatening reality for David. And again, it mirrors so much of what we saw in 7. It could have been the, in the same context in chapter 7, as David is just describing that enemy as the lion who would devour or would tear his soul to pieces. But again, David, he's using real He's real. He's using honest, intense words to describe the feelings in his heart. And I love that. Lord, they're like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion just lurking for the prey or in, in hiding places. But in the middle of all of that, in his honesty, In his feelings, David says in verse 13, Arise, O Lord. Like, this is my hope. Confront him. Bring him low. Deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword. From men with your hand, O Lord. From men of the world whose, notice this, portion is in this life. They're looking for their reward in the world, right? They're living for the here and now. And whose belly you will fill with treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes. David, David is casting his, again, once again, his dependency upon the Lord. I love this. One commentator brought out the point that this wasn't because David was afraid of such li- lion-like enemies as a young boy. 
David defeated both bears and lions, but listen, this was because David needed to see his enemy defeated at the hand of God, not at the hand of David. He's saying, Lord, would you do the work? Would you confront them? This is your fight to fight. It's your battle. Bring them low. Bring them to their knees. Put an end to them. Lord, here's who they are. Here's my case against them. Would you now, it's all, it's all in your hands. Would you act? And David says about himself in verse 15, but as for me, he's contrasting the life of the wicked with his own. I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Resurrection morning, David says, man, I will be satisfied. My enemies, they're living for the here and now. Their portion, remember what he said, their portion, the best that they got is in this life. How sad. But David says, as for me, I shall behold your face. I will be satisfied when I see you. I'm not living for today, David says. Not living for the glory of today. I'm living for another day when I will be with the Lord, when I will see him face to face. And then David says, it's then that I will be satisfied. No longer seeking satisfaction in this world, ways in, in this world to, to make me happy, to, 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 to fill up my cup filled with joy or what have you. David says, this world I'm not living for. I'm living for a different world, the world to come. And it's there that I'm going to be satisfied with your likeness when I'm awake. What a great word for us when we're facing just difficulties in life, difficulties in relationships, when we're backed against the wall, we've experienced hurt, right? Trusting the Lord with those people. Lord, you know you're going to have to judge. You're the judge, not us. We're not even our own defense. I'm giving them over to you, Lord. Let you, Lord, you need to deal with them. You need to, to work it out between them. But for, for me, Lord, for us tonight, Lord, let us keep our eyes on you continually. Bask in his marvelous loving kindness for you tonight. Trust in him for everything in your relationship, definitely for your salvation. Trust him. You will be satisfied. Fullness of joy is found in the presence of the Lord. Would that be where we're found continually, Lord? to be with you continually. Man, I'm not there yet, but would that just even be the desire of our heart? Lord, I want to desire your presence above anything because you satisfy, because you're good, you're faithful. Father, tonight, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for these truths in your word that we can trust you. If that's all we heard tonight, we can walk out this door refreshed because of that truth that we can trust you. Help us, Lord, to cast our cares upon you tonight, knowing that you care for us. Knowing that our burdens are safe in your hands. Lord, I pray tonight that you would strengthen our walk with you our relationship with you. I pray our faith would increase. No matter what this world throws our way, I pray that we would be men and women who set you continually just 
before us, that we just are men and women who just long to be in the presence of God. I thank you for your loving kindness, your marvelous loving kindness towards us. Help us, Lord. We love you, we praise you, we worship you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, if you, if you need prayer before we rush out the door, just if, you know, if, if the word of God just ministered to your heart, you're like, man, I, I, need to, I need prayer in a certain area, let's pray with someone next to you. Just grab them and say, pray with me, with me. If you don't know them, you feel uncomfortable, come grab me, Pastor Doug, Pastor Kevin are here. We'd love to pray with you. We're not, we don't want to hurry this. We have, we, have, we have some time. Let's just allow the Lord just to bolster our faith and our trust in Him. Experience His presence. Just bask in His presence tonight.